As we've heard throughout the series, the Windsors are no strangers to scandal, from abdications and affairs to divorces and royal exits. Still, they found ways to manage the crisis and ultimately prevail. But in 2021, Prince Andrew, once rumored to be the Queen's favorite son, found himself in uncharted territory when he was sued in civil court. Here's Euronews reporting. A longtime Jeffrey Epstein accuser has sued Prince Andrew over allegations of sexual assault. Virginia Giuffre filed the complaint in a New York court, claiming the prince sexually abused her when she was 17. Giuffre's allegations weren't new. Epstein, who hanged himself in 2019 while in jail, had already been investigated for numerous crimes against young women and convicted of two charges by 2008. And Andrew had reportedly known Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell since the 1990s. But in December 2010, paparazzi captured a photograph of Andrew and Epstein taking a chilly walk together in Central Park. The News of the World published it under Prince Andy and the Pedo a couple months later. So Epstein's crimes and allegations had tainted Andrew for some time, despite his denials of wrongdoing. Andrew said that he had no recollection of ever meeting Jufre, despite another photograph that proved otherwise. In 2021, Jufre filed a lawsuit against Andrew himself, accusing him of raping her, among other sexual offences, when she had been a minor and when Andrew would have been in his 40s. He denied these allegations. Prince Andrew reached an out-of-court settlement with Jufre in February of this year, stating that he regrets his association with Epstein. But what was the Queen's second son even doing with Epstein in the first place? What kind of connections was he making in the world? And what are the long-lasting ramifications? Not only for Prince Andrew, but for the monarchy itself. Sky News, for one, asked one of the million-dollar questions. As the royal family looks to protect their reputation, attention will undoubtedly turn to the man next in line to the throne. So how damaging will this continue to be for the royals and Prince Charles as a future king? In this episode, we'll talk about the various factors of Prince Andrew's disastrous downfall with Vanity Fair contributor Michel Ruiz and historian Andrew Lowney. We'll hear from Professor Robert Hazel about how tenuous the royal brand can be and how much royals, particularly those without real power, can jeopardise it. Investigative journalist Julie K. Brown will discuss the intricacies of the Epstein case and how Prince Andrew became a central figure in it. And we'll consider the broader impacts of Prince Andrew's situation on the future of the monarchy. I'm Katie Nichol. And I'm Erin Vanderhoof. From Vanity Fair, this is Dynasty, The Windsors. Episode 9, How Prince Andrew's Epstein Scandal Rocked the Monarchy. Prince Andrew's entanglements with Jeffrey Epstein have brought the monarchy to one of its lowest points. But to understand how we could even be at a moment like this, as with all family stories, you have to go back to the beginning. This may come as a surprise to some, but decades before Prince Andrew was making headlines for the very worst reasons, he was making headlines for what many considered the right ones, when he was a helicopter pilot for the Royal Navy and saw active service during the Falklands War. Here's an interview he did with the BBC in 1982. 
The only other time I really felt frightened is when we are invited to put on our anti-flash, which you see everybody wearing it, the white stuff. You are asked to put on your anti-flash and then invited to lie on the deck um, in the ship because when a, a missile or so, something hits, the whiplash is such that you would probably break a few bones if you're not supported in any way. The Falklands War was a short but consequential fight between Argentina and Britain over the sovereignty of the Falkland Islands. And even though the 74-day conflict happened off the coast of Argentina, it rallied Britain behind a common cause, and along with it came an outpouring of patriotism. Britain won the war, and when Prince Andrew came home, he was at the peak of his popularity. He was very much hailed as a war hero. In the 1980s, Prince Andrew was one of the main characters of the royal story and was often in the pages of the tabloids. At his public appearances, girls screamed and in one case may have even fainted. It was actually compared to Beatlemania. He was the hero prince who came back from war with a rose clenched between his teeth. He was very good looking and a bit of a Lothario. Many of his relationships were fodder for the tabloids, but the public seemed to accept his playboy lifestyle. He was even given the tongue-in-cheek nickname Randy Andy by the press. Here's journalist Annette Witheridge reporting. He really was a dashing prince. He was serving in the military. Randy Andy, he was known. As strange as it sounds now, for a brief time, Prince Andrew was kind of the poster boy for the monarchy. And in this way, he was really different from his siblings. Anne didn't really care for the limelight. Edward was the youngest and lived a rather quiet life, too. And Prince Charles had a fairly difficult relationship with the media, often coming across as formal and stodgy. Another thing that made Andrew different, particularly from his older siblings, Charles and Anne, is that he had a vastly different childhood. For starters, Prince Andrew was born in 1960, more than 10 years after his older siblings. Joyful news from Buckingham Palace. The birth of His Royal Highness the Baby Prince. Honouring the first child born to a British reigning sovereign for over a hundred years, a royal salute is fired in Hyde Park. We talked about this earlier in this series, but it's important to remember that the Queen had Charles and Anne just before her accession to the throne. So at the same time that she was learning to be a mother, she was also learning to be head of state. When she gave birth to Andrew and later Edward, she'd already grown into her role as queen and could be much more relaxed with her younger children. Here's historian Andrew Lowney. I think the queen was better with Andrew and Edward than she was with Charles, and and she was busy with, you know, being a monarch. And I think there was a sense, you know, of that generation too, that sometimes you had to toughen them up in order to face the world. You couldn't indulge them. As a child, Andrew was said to be boisterous and mischievous. He once sprinkled itching powder into the Queen's bed. Another time, he climbed onto the roof of Buckingham Palace to fiddle with the TV antenna so that the Queen wouldn't be able to watch one of her horse races. But somehow, he always seemed to be forgiven. Looking back, it definitely seems like there was a pattern emerging where Andrew would stir the pot or pull a prank, and maybe he'd get a light scolding, but it doesn't seem like he faced any real consequences for his actions. I think that kind of indulgence really could produce an arrogance and sense of entitlement, and it did with Prince Andrew, and that's followed him throughout his life. 
Journalist Tina Brown didn't mince words when she spoke about Andrew's character earlier this year in an interview with Margaret Hoover on PBS's Firing Line. He's a person of small intellect and major status, so that's a bad combination. And he was always, you know, an oaf, frankly, uh, treated his staff poorly, you know, threw his weight around. It feels like such a stark contrast from his parents, who were always bound together by a sense of duty. But sadly, aside from serving in the military, Prince Andrew's sense of duty has seemed, well, woefully absent. I mean, even in the military, his attitude was called into question. There's an anecdote in Nigel Cawthorn's 2020 book, Prince Andrew, Epstein, Maxwell, and the Palace, where he recounts Andrew's first tour of duty. He was stationed on an aircraft carrier, and when introduced to the captain, who, you know, given the setting, clearly outranked Andrew, he said casually, Hi, I'm Prince Andrew, but you can call me Andrew. To which the captain replied, And you can call me Sir. Well, Erin, I think that was one of the few people who dared to put Prince Andrew in his place. But I think his arrogance was also complicated by the fact that, despite whatever he thought he deserved, he was always going to be lower in the pecking order. Here's Vanity Fair contributor Michelle Ruiz. There's been a notorious kind of spare problem in the British monarchy. You know, we saw it with Margaret. We kind of see it a bit with Prince Harry, too, where if you are not the direct heir, you're a little bit lost within the system. You're still technically considered kind of important, but not as important as the heir. Both younger sons Andrew and Harry joined the military, which is a traditional career path for royals, given the monarch is head of the armed forces. In fact, Harry decided he wanted to be a helicopter pilot after hearing his uncle Andrew's stories about flying in the Falklands War. And the military roles suited them both. As spares, military service was a meaningful role because it was about serving the queen and country. Here's Andrew Lowney again. The whole presentation of a very strong family unit working in the interests of the country above their own personal interests has been very much the trope. And really the challenges come when that public duty is challenged by private pleasure. So a few years after the Falklands War, the Playboy Prince was still rumoured to have a string of girlfriends. That all changed at the Royal Ascot races in 1985. Andrew reconnected with Sarah Ferguson. You might know her as Fergie. She was a childhood friend of the family. And at the time, Fergie's father was Charles's polo manager. She'd grown up in the aristocracy and seemed like a pretty good match for the prince. When they announced their engagement in March 1986, ITN News had this to say. I can exactly see why they like Sarah Ferguson, because she, when she comes to have tea or to have dinner with them, she brings them sort of gossip and news from Sotheby's, and she is, is still of an age to go to nightclubs, and she tells them sort of dinner party chat. And it, and it isn't all royal chat, it's sort of proper chat. She, you know, it's Bond Street gossip, and it's what's going on in Clapham and what's going on in Fulham and things. A few months later, following a whirlwind romance, Prince Andrew and Fergie were married at Westminster Abbey. And on their wedding day, the couple were given the titles of the Duke and Duchess of York. Now, the Duke of York is a title of great significance because it was held by both the Queen's father, George VI, and her grandfather, George V. So it really seemed to underscore the fact that the Queen had a particular soft spot for her second son. The couple started with seemingly auspicious beginnings. They were often seen showing public displays of affection, and they went on to have two daughters, Beatrice and Eugenie. And Andrew really went to the mat for his girls to make sure that they were given all of the rights and privileges of being full princesses as granddaughters of the queen. 
they seemed in many ways to be exactly the kind of family image the monarchy wanted to put forward, and they got plenty of great press. Going back to a moment before their wedding, Andrew and Fergie actually sat down for an interview with ITN and spoke about the strength of their relationship. We're a good team, anyway. Yes, I think that's the same grace, is the fact that that in the last nine months we've discovered that we work very well together. Um, We're good friends, good team. Quite happy. But four short years later, their marriage began to erode. Andrew's naval duties often took him overseas and away from his family. Fergie once said that they'd only spent 40 days together each year in the first five years of their marriage. And when Andrew was home, he reportedly devoted most of his energy to playing golf. On top of not spending enough time together, Andrew and Fergie were also under financial strain. Of course, by strain, I don't mean that they didn't have any money. It was more the strain that can come from comparison. Because almost no matter how rich you are, there is always someone richer. And for Andrew and Fergie, that somebody was his big brother Charles and his wife Diana. Yes, according to Sally Beddle-Smith's reporting in her book, Diana in Search of Herself, Andrew only drew a modest salary from the Royal Navy, about £35,000 a year. So he and Fergie were largely financially dependent on the bank of mum and dad. Charles and Diana, however, earned millions of pounds a year from the Duchy of Cornwall and Charles's investments. Sally quotes a palace official as saying about Fergie, Sarah should have lived the life of a naval officer's wife in Dorset, made a home there and done a few things, but instead she wanted to emulate Diana. And she spent like Diana too, but without the money. So she did what anyone would do. She went into debt. And then they split in 1992. Five months later, rumors of Fergie's infidelities had bulldozed through the tabloids. Photos were published of the Duchess topless in Saint-Tropez, apparently getting her toes sucked by her supposed financial advisor. Yes, and on the morning that those photographs were published, Fergie was actually staying at Balmoral with the royal family. So talk about an awkward family breakfast that morning with those pictures published on the front page of the Daily Mirror. The legend is that Prince Philip was furious and vowed never to talk to Fergie again, and he refused to allow her back at Balmoral for many years. So while Sarah had the credentials on paper... She wasn't suited to the role of royal wife. She found it lonely and isolating, just like Diana. Here's Andrew Lowney again. I think Andrew marrying Fergie was a disaster, but he was very different from the other children. And she was, after all, someone who knew about court life. So the feeling was that they would understand the constrictions. But, you know, the characters were just unsuitable for the roles they had. And so it was all going to end in tears. By 1996, Prince Andrew and Fergie officially divorced, though she later said that it happened mainly because she wanted to go out and work. But they've maintained an unusually close relationship ever since. They kept co-parenting and living together on and off, even after their daughters were grown, and in 2019, they sent out a joint Christmas card. To their full credit, they've managed to be very happily divorced. The Yorks are a very tight and loyal family unit. In fact, Fergie has been one of Andrew's most loyal supporters throughout the entire Epstein scandal. There's even been talk of a possible remarriage now that the Duke of Edinburgh is no longer with us. But back in the mid-90s, Fergie and Andrew's marriage, as well as Charles and Diana's, had ended in very public divorces. The perception of the monarchy was at one of its lowest points, and people were beginning to question the relevance and future of the institution, as well as the individuals within it. 
This all posed a bit of a problem for the Duke of York. Here's why. Three things happened all around the same time. In 1996, he took a desk job at the Ministry of Defense, officially bringing his days at sea to an end. He was reportedly quite bored and, in his own words, tired and run down, and he retired from the Navy in 2001. Around the same time, he was single again and back on the party scene, out at nightclubs with new friends with new money, opening himself to a whole new set of problems. He didn't seem to have a plan for a future with a purpose. According to Cawthorne's biography, Prince Andrew's aimlessness earned him an earful from his father. And of course, his finances may still have been fraught, with no apparent new reliable sources of income. But in 2001, he became the UK's Special Representative for International Trade and Investment. Doesn't that sound good? Now, the British government describes this role as promoting UK business internationally, marketing the UK to potential investors, and building relationships in support of UK business interests. Though some were skeptical of Andrew's approach to the job, including his glamorous globetrotting, often on the public tab. Yes, as trade envoy, he earned the nickname Air Miles Andy for all the taxpayer-funded flights he took, and somehow, he seemed to be headed to places that were conveniently near golf courses or ski resorts, travelling in style, even on official trips. Here's Channel 4 reporting. Air Miles Andy and his travel spend have been controversial, too costly, say some, for years. I am not doing this, as it were, for my own good. I am not getting any return for this. This is all done on behalf of the UK. Well, that's not the full story. Prince Andrew was meeting some important movers and shakers, and he made sure he benefited from these new working relationships too. His role as trade envoy became mired in controversy as the line between his public role and private interests became more blurred. But in the end, one of Prince Andrew's most costly errors was seeking out connections and forming friendships with people the royals should have never been mixed up with in the first place. Here's Tina Brown again on Firing Line. He always felt he didn't have enough money to live the way that he wanted to live, which led him into the, the, the company of people who want to be around royalty. Inevitably, that means that they're going to be unsavory a lot of the time. And they really were. He had terrible judgment about people. The list of unsavory characters included a Libyan businessman convicted of attempting to smuggle a submachine gun into France. He once reportedly gifted a $30,000 gold and diamond necklace to Beatrice for her 21st birthday. But the most unsavory character of all, the one who would figure so heavily in Prince Andrew's downfall, that was Jeffrey Epstein. Still to come on Vanity Fair's Dynasty, The Windsors. Epstein, he didn't operate in a vacuum. I mean, he had a whole ecosystem of people that were helping him. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. 
I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> When Epstein was arrested in 2019, I think that there was a sense of shock and disbelief because for years he just seemed untouchable. Here's PBS NewsHour reporting back in 2019. Jeffrey Epstein, a politically connected financier, is now facing up to 45 years in prison on charges that he was running a sex trafficking ring in the early 2000s that included underage girls as young as 14 years old. Epstein first came under investigation in 2005 for similar allegations and pled guilty to soliciting a minor for prostitution in 2008. But at the time, he was given an incredibly lenient plea deal where he only served 13 months in a Florida county jail. So when he was arrested again more than a decade later, it was the news story that went around the world and ultimately one that landed on Buckingham Palace's doorstep. Around the time of Epstein's 2019 arrest, court documents were unsealed that alleged that Prince Andrew was part of Epstein's cohort. The documents included allegations from Virginia Roberts Dufrey. One of Epstein's accusers has made allegations against you. She says she met you in 2001. She says she dined with you, danced with you at Tramp Nightclub in London. She went on to have sex with you in a house in Belgravia belonging to Gerlen Maxwell, your friend. Your response? This is Emily Maitlis, former BBC journalist. In November 2019, just three months after Dufresne's allegations became public, Emily sat down with Prince Andrew in a Buckingham Palace ballroom. All of this goes back to your friendship with Jeffrey Epstein. Mm. You said you weren't very good friends, but would you describe him as a good friend? Did you trust him? Uh, yes, I think I probably did. But uh, again, um, I, mean, I don't go into um, a friendship looking for the wrong thing, if you understand what I mean. I mean I'm, I'm, a, I'm an engaging person. I want to be able to engage. Whether they were simply friends or good friends, we may never know. But here are some other important details about their relationship. Prince Andrew first met Jeffrey Epstein back in 1999 through their mutual friend, Ghislaine Maxwell. She is the daughter of controversial media giant Robert Maxwell, and just like Epstein, used her wealth and social status to connect with important people. Epstein, Maxwell, and Prince Andrew were linked throughout the 2000s. They reportedly partied together at nightclubs in New York and London and vacationed in Thailand and the Caribbean. So what was in it for Epstein? He seemingly liked to tell people that royalty was around. And what was in it for Andrew? He reportedly got connections and cash from Epstein. This was just purely about power and protecting power and money. This is journalist and author Julie K. Brown. Her year-long investigation into Epstein, in which she identified some 80 alleged victims and further exposed Epstein's pattern of abuse, was one of the main catalysts for his arrest and, in 2020, Maxwell's arrest. 
he didn't operate in a vacuum. I mean, he had a whole ecosystem of people that were helping him. You know, women who were scheduling these girls, butlers who were welcoming them into the kitchen, chefs who were feeding them little afternoon snacks, you know. So there was a lot of people who knew what he was doing and helped him get away with it. Which brings us back to Prince Andrew. He has not been accused of trafficking along with Epstein and Maxwell, but he was accused of rape. Jufre alleged the abuse spanned several different locations across the greater Epstein-Maxwell universe. Her London house, his New York mansion, and his private island. And Andrew's friendship with Epstein was close enough to invite him to his daughter's 18th birthday party at Windsor Castle in 2006, after Epstein was already under investigation. Andrew stayed at Epstein's house in New York in 2010 after Epstein served 13 months in prison. And when given the opportunity to show remorse or regret about his friendship with Epstein, Andrew still seemed strangely beholden to him. Do you regret the whole friendship with Epstein? Um, uh, Now, uh, still not. And the reason being is that that the, the people that I met... Um, and the opportunities that I was given to learn, um, either by him or because of him, were actually very useful. I thought this was actually the most eye-opening part of the interview. It doesn't take a particularly accurate moral compass to see that those opportunities he got from Epstein were tainted. In other parts of the interview, he seemed so dismissive of the allegations that he almost scoffed at them. Julie K. Brown again. One of the biggest takeaways about Jeffrey Epstein was that he felt that he was above the law. So it's not really surprising to me that those that were around him who had just as much power and influence also probably think they're above the law and are also hoping they're going to essentially skate away from this. But Prince Andrew didn't skate away. In fact, he kept digging a bigger hole for himself. During that disastrous Newsnight interview, he said things like he couldn't have been with Jufre on one of the nights in question because he was at a Pizza Express birthday party instead. Many viewers said they found his statements defensive, strange, and unpersuasive. But Andrew seemed to think he'd come off well, and sources told me that he'd said to his mother that the interview had been a great success. Charles and William knew how damaging the interview had been, and they were by this stage gravely concerned. And they had reason to be, because in August 2021, Jufre filed a civil case against Prince Andrew in the state of New York. Prince Andrew attempted to have Jufre's sexual abuse lawsuit thrown out. But in January 2022, a federal judge ruled it could go forward. The following day, Buckingham Palace released a statement regarding Andrew's royal status, which read, With the Queen's approval and agreement, the Duke of York's military affiliations and royal patronages have been returned to the Queen. The Duke of York will continue to not undertake any public duties and is defending this case as a private citizen. Of course, that blew up. Here's Global News. In a decisive move, Queen Elizabeth II has stripped Prince Andrew of all his honorary military titles, as well as his royal roles in charities and other civic groups. The Queen wasn't casting Andrew out of the family entirely, but she was essentially expressing as much displeasure with a family member as she ever has in public. Some said the move was too little too late. Others characterized it as brutal and devastating. In either case, the decision couldn't have been easy for the Queen. 
No, Erin, not at all. And one of those moments where she has to be monarch and mother. But for the Queen, as a mother, it must have been terribly upsetting. She'd reportedly asked Andrew frankly about those allegations, and he'd assured her on more than one occasion that he was innocent. But the idea of a senior royal at the centre of a sexual assault civil court case was unimaginable. And so a settlement must have seemed a wise route. Andrew was reported to have paid Dufre around $12 million, and he agreed to make a donation to her charity. So there was no court case, but Andrew was stripped of his titles, his patronages, and his royal duties. But he still had the support of the Queen and was by her side at the service of Thanksgiving for the late Duke of Edinburgh in March. Andrew reportedly claimed that prominent spot against the wishes of William and Charles. But after that display, most of us were really curious about what might happen at the Platinum Jubilee. The palace beforehand drew a pretty clear line in the sand— The balcony was for working members of the family, and the weekend's focus would be on them. Mercifully, a very convenient case of COVID cropped up the morning of Trooping the Color, and Andrew's participation was a non-issue. Well, for the time being, Andrew seems to be keeping a low profile and is more or less retired, though some are still speculating that he's planning a return to public life. Andrew has made it clear, privately behind the scenes, that he believes this is possible. And we know that he has, in private, the support of his mother. But there's a power struggle going on here. Charles and William won't have Andrew in any public role because they know how toxic he is to the brand. And I'm told that when Charles is king, there will be no royal role for his brother. And William shares his father's view. It simply can't happen. Here's what Robert Hazell, Professor of Government and Constitution at University College London, had to say. I think there would be quite a lot of public protest and pushback if he sought to return to public life. And that perhaps illustrates a very important lesson about the monarchy, that ultimately they depend on the support of the public. And if, for any reason, that public support is withdrawn then the monarchy risks getting into real trouble. In some ways, Andrew's exit has had its benefits. It's fast-tracked the streamlining of the royal family, which has long been on Charles's agenda. And in many ways, the monarchy has been paring itself down organically ever since Harry and Meghan left. So, like we saw at the Platinum Jubilee the future of the monarchy will ultimately come down to Charles. Some say he's been ahead of his time for decades, and he has all these ideas. He has tons of experience, but he's never really gotten to put it to the test. That will have to happen soon. Next time on Vanity Fair's final episode of Dynasty, The Windsors, an in-depth look at the Prince of Wales as one chapter of the monarchy draws to a close and another begins. I think Charles has actually been very misunderstood. Part of it is, you know, he has a certain formality that I think people mistake for being sort of old-fashioned. But I think he's actually been a really progressive person. Maybe he was kind of too far ahead of his time, and so people didn't understand him. Unlike the Queen, Charles has known from birth that he would one day be king. But how did that knowledge help him, and how did it hinder him along the way? And after some very tumultuous years for the palace, will Charles have what it takes to keep the monarchy afloat? 
I think there will be an attempt to rebrand because once Charles is king, he'll bring in his own people. And he was a bit of a modernizer. And so I think they will continue to try and push for their own survival. The monarchy, particularly the Windsors, they'll do anything to survive. That's next on Dynasty. Dynasty is hosted by Katie Nichol and me, Aaron Vanderhoof, and is produced by Vanity Fair in partnership with something else. Lizzie Jacobs is our executive producer. Darby Doris and Brian Erstadt are our editors. Rob Dozier, Zoe Edwards, Chica Ayers, and Sylvie Lubo are our producers. Ginny Bloom is our showrunner. Basha Curtin and Jessica Jones are our associate producers. And E.K. Batola, Lily Hambly, and Peyton Hayes are our production coordinators. This episode was engineered by Josh Gibbs, and the theme song was composed by Wooly Music. Fact-checking was done by Sarah Karlevsky. Dynasty was conceived by Vanity Fair executive editor Claire Howarth. Claire and Katie Rich are our staff editorial consultants. Thank you to our guests, Michelle Ruiz, Andrew Lowney, Robert Hazel, and Julie K. Brown. If you love the show, be sure to rate, review, and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more Dynasty, visit vf.com forward slash Dynasty. And you can follow Vanity Fair on Instagram and Twitter at Vanity Fair. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker and host of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast. On the podcast, I ask a great contemporary writer to select a favorite story from the magazine's almost 100-year archive to read and discuss. Together, we delve into the story, exploring its themes, its style, and what makes fiction work. You can listen to authors like Otessa Moshveg talk about why we write. Story, or attaching a story or creating a story, is this inclination that we all have to stop spinning. And you can hear writers like George Saunders discuss the nature of storytelling. On the first read, you accept these things as descriptions and they make you see the scene, but every line is a chance to inflect the reader's mind. You'll discover new favorite authors and read old favorites in new ways. Episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast are released on the first of every month. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts.